There once was a show on TV called The Sopranos. It was about a New Jersey mafia family. My favorite episode is titled Pine Barrens, which refers to a forested region in New Jersey. In that episode, two Soprano family thugs have been ordered to kill a Russian mobster. So they take the Russian out to the snowy Pine Barrens and force him to dig his own grave. The Russian starts digging, but suddenly whirls around, whacks him with the shovel, and takes off running. One of the Soprano guys shoots at the Russian, who is hit but keeps going. He disappears among the trees as the two mobsters take off after him. They find a blood trail in the snow, but at some point the trail ends. The blood just disappears. They look and look, but find nothing. Only silence, endless trees, and snow. As they continue the search, they become lost. And you can see on their faces that they have this dawning sense that, have the tables turned? Is this guy coming after us now? Well, the mobsters never found the Russian, and the viewers don't either. The show never revealed what happened to the guy. But it was such a compelling episode that it left many viewers angry that they had been denied closure by the show's writers. Stories need closure, right? Long ago, I learned about a Texas mystery that gave me the same feeling that I had when watching Pine Barrens. A compelling story, but frustratingly one lacking a nicely tied bow at the end. Would you like to hear about it? I hope so, because I've been thinking about this story for more than 20 years. Welcome to episode four of The Other Side of the Story. In this podcast, we explore the true story of slavery in Texas. If you've listened to the first three episodes, you know that I've taken a pretty broad view of slavery and that we're generally moving in a chronological order. But every now and then we'll step outside the main narrative and detour into a very specific instance of the Texas slavery experience. In this episode, I'd like to tell you the story of one enslaved Texan, a fellow named John. And before we get started, a little warning. This episode contains some pretty stiff language that comes directly from the legal record Of what happened to John. In 1852, John ran for his life into a Texas forest and disappeared, never to be seen again. That fact and the events leading up to his abrupt disappearance sparked a legal fight that led all the way to the Texas Supreme Court. The case highlights the strange way that Texas courts would, in some cases, acknowledge the humanity of enslaved people, but in other ways treat them simply as property. The paradoxical nature of this led to some contorted legal reasoning and rulings, something we'll explore a bit today and in more depth in a later episode. John, no last name appears in the legal record, lived near Independence, a community in Washington County, Texas. That's in the southeastern part of the state, down toward Houston. John was one of many enslaved people there. About half of Washington County's population consisted of enslaved Texans. John lived on a plantation owned by a man named Felix W. Robertson. Robertson had, many times, given John a pass to take cotton from the plantation down to Houston for sale. John would do this by loading the sacks of cotton onto a wagon and driving a team of oxen. Shipping cotton by wagon was a common activity at that time and in that area 
because the Brazos River, which makes up the eastern border of the county, was not navigable for much of the year. Recall that this was before the river was dammed. Back then, the water would rise and fall a great deal, depending on the season. In addition, the railroad didn't arrive in the county until shortly before the Civil War. So in April of 1852, John was tasked with driving five yoke of oxen and six bags of cotton to Houston. These cotton bags in the wagon were very heavy, as evidenced by the fact that ten stout animals were needed to pull them. Everything went well at first, and he soon arrived at the Brazos River. A ferry near the small community of Rock Island would take wagons across for a small fee. So John carefully urged the oxen onto the ferry and crossed the river. His route was never on paved roads, and thanks to the ferry, crossing the river wasn't his biggest obstacle. The challenge was the wooded, gently sloping area that formed the Brazos River bottom. That area had recently flooded with spring rains. A diary entry from a traveler through Texas some years before gives a good sense of the area and the scale of the spring floods. Quote, the country through which we passed yesterday and today consisted of high black prairie and black mud swamps alternately. Very few settlements visible. Fine herds of cattle grazing and occasionally deer, startled by the appearance of travelers, would gaze at us for a moment, then show the white flag and bound away. As we approached the Brazos, the road descended into a marsh of several miles extent, all subject to overflow, the trees showing the watermarks 20 and 30 feet high. As the oxen slowly pulled up from the river, the wagon pitched on the rough track and part of the load fell off. Two white men who were also driving a team on the road, A.W. Hood and his nephew Robert Hood, pulled up behind John and helped him get the cotton back on the wagon. John continued his journey a ways ahead of the hoods. And this is where events began to conspire against John. As John continued to drive his team up the river bottom, he had trouble for a second time. The wagon became stuck in the mud. He quickly realized that his way forward on the track would be impossible. This left him two options, go left or go right. On one side of the track was a large pile of logs, so he couldn't go that way. On the other side was a fence marking the edge of a field. This field, where cotton was beginning to grow, was owned by Jared Kirby, who happened to be a very wealthy planter. It was at this point, with John stuck in the mud, that the hoods once again pulled up behind him. About the time they stopped, John was busy taking down the fence so he could go through Kirby's cotton field. They warned John against this, saying that it was late in the day and John would never be able to pull the fence down, move his team, and rebuild the fence before dark. In one of the fairly rare instances of an enslaved Texan's voice being captured by a trial record, John replied that he'd be damned if he didn't know Kirby, and Kirby knew him, and that he would pull down the fence and go on his way that night. Clearly, John had had some sort of negative experience with Kirby. Once John had pulled the fence down, he made several attempts to get the oxen to pull the wagon free, but the animals couldn't do it. By now, long shadows stretched across the field. Darkness was coming, so John gave up and made camp. He chained his oxen and his horse to a stump and made a fire just inside the fence line. The hoods camped for the night a little ways away, and soon all was quiet.
in the misty, dim morning light of the next day, the ghostly figures of enslaved field hands began to appear at work in the distance. John would have heard this sort of cadenced call, known as a field holler, from the enslaved workers as the sun rose. John strode through the field and asked for help getting the wagon unstuck. Two enslaved workers agreed, and so they began to unload the cotton from the wagon to lighten it enough to escape the mud. About that time, Kirby's overseer, a man named Henry Hedgepeth, rode up. An overseer is a person who directed the daily work of enslaved people. Hedgepeth looked at A.W. Hood and demanded to know by what authority he had taken down the fence. Hedgepeth apparently assumed that the Hoods had taken down the fence. Hood replied that he had not done so and pointed at John. Hedgepeth wheeled his horse and asked John if he had, in fact, pulled the fence down. John looked up at him and said that, yes, he had. Hedgepeth then turned to Hood and asked if John was under his charge. When Hood responded, no... And this is one of those moments where you can feel time slow down. John was in trouble. Hedgepeth turned to John and shouted, I'll whip you, goddamn you, and moved at John, who sidestepped around the other side of the oxen. Hedgepeth, and you can feel his rising anger at being disobeyed in this way, spurred his horse around the oxen to get at John, but John ran out of the field. Hedgepeth hollered at the two slaves who had been helping John to grab him. One tried but John told him that he'd better not lay his hands on him. John then ran a ways down the track toward the river and stopped. This infuriated Hedgepath, who shouted down the road, You can run, goddamn you, but I'll whip you or kill you before you get home, you damn son of a bitch. Let's take stock here. Does the fact that John refused to submit to the overseer surprise you? If you've read about slavery, or seen movies, what have you, you understand that enslaved people did not have the right to choose when and by whom they were to be beaten. Yet, consider John's actions. He's already rejected a warning from two white men that he not take down the fence. He persuaded enslaved workers, who he probably did not even know to stop working for their owner and come help him instead. That's an offense that could have gotten them whipped. And even though he had taken down the fence and camped inside the field, he refused to accept a command or the beating that was promised, from the landowner's overseer for doing so. So John is a slave, but he clearly has a strong sense of self. Does that surprise you? At this point, Hedgepath took a moment to consider his options. He had surely assumed, when he rode out into the field that morning, that it would just be another day of forcing enslaved people to work. He had little need for more than a horse and a whip to do that. But this situation from his perspective, had quickly become something much more serious because an enslaved person was refusing to do what he was told. In a system based on and enforced by violence, anyone who bucked that posed a threat to the entire order. Hedgepath decided it was time for his dogs and his gun. He jumped off his horse and told one of Kirby's slaves to take it and hurry back to the house and get them. Meanwhile, the record makes clear that the Hoods had observed all of this, A.W. Hood sensed that events were spiraling toward a violent conclusion. 
he took it upon himself to try to mediate between the two men. While the slaves sped away to get the dogs and gun, Hood approached Hedgepath and suggested that, quote, maybe we should fix this matter up without any difficulty. But Hedgepath refused to even discuss it. So Hood walked down the track to John and told him that if he got a whipping, it wouldn't be much. John disagreed. He responded by calling out to Hood's nephew to bring him his horse. But Hedgepath, hearing that, took hold of the horse and wouldn't let go. When that happened, John knew he had no more cards to play. So he turned and ran to the river. Shortly thereafter, Kirby, the landowner, rode up. Hedgepath offered to take the dogs and bring John back. Kirby agreed. Hedgepath rode about 20 yards, stopped, turned and said, quote, Colonel Kirby, if you'll give me your gun, I'll make the damned rascal come back. Kirby gave him his gun, and Hedgepath, along with some dogs, charged off toward the river. Hedgepath returned after about half an hour without John. He reported that the ferryman said that John had been there, but he had refused to take John across the river. He said the ferryman didn't know where John went after that. Hedgepath claimed that he never saw John. A.W. Hood later testified that while Hedgepath was gone, he heard a single gunshot in the direction of the ferry, but he did not know who fired it. Robert Hood, A.W.'s nephew, testified to the same effect, except that he never heard a gunshot. When Felix Robertson, John's owner, got word of this, he attempted to track down John's whereabouts. He talked to the ferryman, who denied knowing where John was or what happened to him. Robertson searched carefully through the forest for a half mile down the river. He knew that John was an excellent swimmer. And so, perhaps, John had made it across. But Robertson never learned what had happened to John. John was a trusted slave, and obviously a valuable item of property. So Robertson, frustrated by the loss, hired a lawyer and filed a lawsuit in district court against the overseer Hedgepath and the landowner Kirby. And so the case of Hedgepath versus Robertson was begun. The case would be tried before a jury. In Texas jury cases, then as now, even though the jury issues a verdict based on the facts of the case, the judge has considerable power over the verdict by controlling what questions are submitted to the jury. The jury doesn't just willy-nilly rule one way or another. They answer specific questions that are shaped by the judge. The document that has these questions is known as a jury charge. As you'll see in a moment when we talk about the specifics of the charge in this case, jury charges tend to be if-then statements. After the jury was provided the evidence that we've talked about, the trial judge submitted a charge notable in two respects. The first related to John's decision to pull down Kirby's fence. The charge said that if the jury believed that John had pulled down the fence only to extricate the wagon, there was no real damage done to Kirby. So that's the if in the if-then statement. And here's the then. If the jury found that no real damage was done to Kirby, then Kirby and Hedgepath would have had no right to whip John. The second notable aspect of the charge related to John's disappearance. The judge told the jury that John's absence since that day did not, in and of itself, mean that the jury must conclude that Hedgepath had killed him. However, the judge said that the jury could infer John's death from the circumstances of his pursuit. 
And if they did conclude that John had been killed by Hedgepeth, then they could factor that into their judgment against Hedgepeth and Kirby. So what did the jury find? In regard to pulling down the fence, they found that temporarily pulling it down was a perfectly reasonable course of action by John. So that meant that the overseer, Hedgepeth, had no right to whip John. That's a big ouch for Hedgepeth and Kirby because without the threat of a beating, John would not have fled. You can probably see what's coming next. Once the jury decided that the whipping wasn't reasonable, that opened the door to an inference that John had died or otherwise been lost to his owner because of the actions of the defendants. And sure enough, the jury awarded $1,300 in damages to John's owner because they believed that the defendants' actions had led to Robertson's loss of a trusted slave. That's a lot of money. $1,300 would be roughly $40,000 today. The defendants were not happy with this verdict, so they appealed it. Then as now, when someone takes a case up on appeal, there's not another trial. Instead, they argue that the trial judge made some mistake, a mistake that would justify correction by the higher court. On appeal to the Texas Supreme Court, the defendants attacked the jury charge. They went after the first part of the jury charge by arguing that, in coming on Kirby's land, John had committed a trespass. This, they argued, automatically made his decision to pull down the fence a wrongful act. The overseer, therefore, was justified in attempting to whip John. And yes, strictly speaking, John did trespass on Kirby's land the moment he walked onto it without first gaining Kirby's permission. But was it enough to justify a whipping? The defendants argued that it was enough because if John hadn't pulled down the fence, the whole sordid affair never would have happened in the first place. The defendants attacked the second part of the jury charge by arguing that it essentially told the jury that the pursuit of John was wrong, that in giving the jury the authority to infer John's death, the trial judge was strongly suggesting that that's exactly what the jury should do, and that, they argued, was not the proper role of a trial judge. The defendants also made the interesting argument that the purpose of the gun was simply to control John and make him stop. You, dear listener, have heard testimony about the interaction between Hedgepath and John. Do you think the gun was given to Hedgepath simply to control John? Do you think it was reasonable for the jury to infer John's death? So, basically, who committed the first wrong? Did John's action amount to a trespass significant enough to justify a beating? If so, it would follow that the defendants were within their rights to pursue John. But if the damage caused by John's actions were minimal, then threatening to whip him and chasing him down with a gun and dogs was excessive. After reviewing the litigants' arguments, the Supreme Court issued a ruling in 1857. The court began by stating that the pulling down of the fence was so minor that it was either not a trespass at all or one of little significance and was done in the performance of John's master's service. The court said it was a, quote, very small matter to make the occasion of a desperate resolve to whip or kill the slave of a neighbor who had not delegated to them his power and authority over his slave, unquote. The court also declared that the defendants had improperly intervened in the relationship between owner and enslaved person. The court next said that the defendants had no right to frighten John away from his owner's employment, 
nor had they any right to go after him and bring him back by force, because the owner had not delegated to them any such authority over his slave. And thus, in the eyes of the court, their interference was, quote, an outrage upon a neighbor's property and rights. The Supreme Court went on that there was no ambiguity about the nature of the pursuit, so it was proper for the trial court to charge the jury about the legal effect of that pursuit. The court pointed out that John was not a runaway from his master. Rather, he was running away from an unjustified threat of a beating. Quote, it was not material whether the Negro came to his death in one way or the other, or whether he was dead or alive, but that because of the wrongful acts of the defendants, he had been lost to the plaintiff. The Supreme Court justices were so outraged by the damage to Felix Robertson's property rights that the only criticism they had for the trial court was that, in their view, the jury should have awarded Robertson more money. But have you noticed what's missing from all this legalese? Any discussion of John's humanity. Did Henry Hedgepeth, as he rode farther into the forest, ever wonder if the tables had turned? Whether John, a person of considerable fortitude, was watching him? Did Hedgepeth find John and kill him with one blast from his firearm? Or did John, an expert swimmer, make it across the river and to freedom? We'll never know. In Texas in the 1850s, such details didn't matter. What mattered, according to the Supreme Court, was that property had been taken wrongfully. Perhaps I shouldn't have opened this episode by attempting an analogy between a fictional TV episode and a very real, truly horrifying experience that our legal system dealt with by pretending that it was simply talking about a loss of property. I don't know. But I'm struck by how slave owners and mafia men are just some of the people in this world who see other humans as simply a means to an end. I like to think that John made it to a better place. Maybe he made it all the way to Mexico, but I suspect that his bones lie, to this day, unmarked, alone, unmourned, somewhere near the Brazos River here in Texas. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me next time on the other side of the story. <laughs>